So when I was growing up, and especially given that I went to a public high school, I kind of thought it was my duty as a Christian to stand out against my quote-unquote secular peers. Ah, yes. I know what you mean. I had a few t-shirts, like the one that said, basketball is life, but Jesus is forever. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's really intense. And (laughs) I didn't have anything sports related, but I did have a very special bracelet with four important letters. WWJD. Exactly. (laughs) I don't know that I'm ready to wear a WWJD bracelet in New York as a fashion statement. What about you? I'm good. I've got a Jesus fish tattoo. (laughs) That's a little harder to take off than a bracelet. Sure is. So, yes. Do you still have this tattoo? Of course I do. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's introduce the podcast. From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, a podcast from two single Christian women living in New York with ambition and devotion. I'm Caitlin Beatty. And I'm Roxy Stone. Here on Saved by the City, we explore all the ways heartland Christianity can flourish in the heart of Gotham. We might not be visibly identifiable as Christians. I do not have my WWJD bracelet anymore. But there are a lot of people in New York who are visibly religious. Yeah, there's this myth that New York City is a godless, secular, hedonistic playground, and yet you don't have to spend much time here to realize it's teeming with religion. That is so true. Like when I go for my daily walk, it's likely that I'll either hear church bells or calls to prayer at a local mosque, or I might run into an ultra-Orthodox family in East Williamsburg or run into women in hijabs. Religion is both extremely visible and auditory in a place like New York. Yeah, a lot of our neighbors are not Christians, it's true, but the majority are actively seeking God through a religious tradition. And on this episode, we're going to explore some of the ways we've learned from and come to appreciate faith traditions that are not our own. It was first in New York that both of us came up close and personal to see how other faiths seek God. Yeah, there was a time I came up very close and personal. (laughs) Well, I want to know more about that. What do you mean? (laughs) Well, the first year I lived in New York City, a friend of mine who worked at the Jewish Museum got two tickets to their annual Purim Ball. What? Come again? Purim Ball? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I had never heard of it. And my friend had never heard of it either. We're both Christians. So we had no idea what Purim was or what a Purim Ball was. So I Googled it beforehand and learned that it's a celebration of Queen Esther, who's always been a favorite Bible character of mine. I also did some reading about the event itself, which was apparently quite a big deal and sounded very fancy. Like, listen to this. I looked up the press release from the year that I went to the gala The Jewish Museum is partnering with David Stark Design and Production. Stark and his team will transform the drill hall of the Park Avenue Armory into a mysterious and shimmering palace dynamically altering the ceiling height of the Grand Room. You say yes, you say no. New York City stuff. The stuff you dream about when you imagine living in New York City. Mm -hmm. Plus it was a masquerade. Oh, did you rent a ball gown? Like a floor length (laughs) ball gown? Or was it more like a cocktail dress? It was a cocktail dress, but I did buy something special for the event, certainly. Well, clearly. (laughs) How could you not? Unfortunately, there were some things that Google did not 
tell me about Purim balls. <laughs> Namely, that the after-party dance part, which was the part we had tickets for, had a very specific purpose, that of scoring some dates. Now, is that different from what you had envisioned going in? Like, were you surprised to learn that it was kind of this matchmaking yeah. event? <laughs> I kind of thought, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of was just imagining, like, a fun cocktail party and, like, a dance. There was a DJ, but sort of in the in the way of, like, my friend and I would hang out and we would probably, like, dance on the dance floor and maybe we'd talk to a few people. Mm-hmm. Another traditional thing about Purim, according to the Talmud, a person is required to drink until unable to distinguish between the wicked Haman and the good Mordecai. So you're required to drink and drink a lot. It's a little different from Christian parties. Well, unless you hang out with reform dudes and then they're like, <laughs> drink as much beer as you can. It's all created goods. But yes, most Christian parties are not like you must drink to have spiritual insights. Yes. <laughs> So my friend and I got a drink and within seconds, two men approached us. We chatted with them for a little bit and then somewhere in the middle of the conversation, it comes up that we're not Jewish and they (laughs) disappeared not long after. It became clear very quickly that everyone just expected that everyone else was Jewish. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it began to feel very awkward because it was like, okay. Yes. It was a well-lubricated crowd of young, single Jews looking for partners. Mm -hmm. And I was single and young and becoming well-lubricated, but I was not Jewish. Once my friend and I realized what was going on, we did end up having a lot of fun. We just kind of led with the non-Jewish part when guys approached. (laughs) I'm really Um, into Jesus. (laughs) And I noticed, you know, I looked around the room and I saw, okay, like every pair of women here has a pair of men talking to them. Right. I mean, honestly, in a way, it sounds refreshing that like maybe not for you going in, but for the vast majority of people who were there, like the point of the ball is clear. And the idea of going home with several contacts of like potential dates, I'm sure with the eye toward like a long-term relationship or marriage, that honestly sounds better than like going to a bar. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And having less than great men hit on you and maybe you never hear from them again. Exactly. After I kind of understood what was going on, it ended up being really fun. And Mm -hmm. I ended up like talking to a lot of people and asking a lot more questions about like the evening and what it meant and mm-hmm. because there were other kind of things happening in the background and around like traditions and stuff and so it was cool to to hear about all of that and to hear you know just how meaningful that day is for Jews and it's a true celebration it's a lot like Halloween like people dress up they have mm. masks there's the feast there's the drinking it's a really fun occasion for people so It does sound fun. I can't say that I've been to a Purim ball in New York, but certainly just being in the neighborhoods that I've been in or like walking the streets of Manhattan, there is a strong sense that I can't assume that I'm part of the religious majority, just the the amount of both racial and visibly religious diversity in a place like New York is refreshing. And it sounds like your experience at the Purim Ball was an opportunity to like learn from or appreciate this important celebration in Judaism. And that that wasn't threatening (laughs) to your Christian faith. That was energizing and enlightening. And of course, would connect to your Christian faith, given that it's about Esther and Esther is such an important biblical figure. 
Roxy, I kind of have the sense that if we were able to meet at a bar and being good, inquisitive religion journalists, at some point we would talk about data as we typically do. Of course we would. We would break out the numbers. That is my favorite kind of bar talk. So let's play a round of New York by by the the numbers. numbers. So first stat... 59% of all adults in New York identify as Christian. Of those, 33% are Catholic, 9% Evangelical, 8% Mainline Protestant, 6% Historically Black Protestant, and the rest are other Christians. Among other religions, 8% of New York residents are Jewish, 3% Muslim, 3% Hindu, 1% Buddhist, and the rest are considered other world religions. So the takeaway you might be getting is evangelicals might feel like they're in the minority, but Christians really are the majority of New York City residents. Yeah, and I think the reason why evangelicals perceive that New York is godless isn't so much that there aren't any Christians here. It's that the majority of Christians who are in New York are not self-identifying evangelicals. Let's do another round, Caitlin. New York by the numbers. Da-da-da! Muslims in New York City are estimated to number between 700,000 and 1 million. There are over 300 mosques throughout the city. New York has the greatest concentration of Jewish people of any metro in the U.S. More than 1.5 million Jews now live in New York, the second largest Jewish population in the world outside of Israel. That's more than live in the metropolitan areas of Boston, Chicago, Philadelphia, San Francisco, and Washington, D.C. combined. What's the takeaway from all of this? It seems to me like... Even though the number of nuns and religiously unaffiliated, that's N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S, continued to rise in the U.S., so do the number of people of non-Christian faith. So in this way, New York may be a harbinger of national trends. All right. One more round. Take it away. All right. To wrap this up, our big (laughs) data dump, New York by the numbers, let's do a speed round. Percent of New Yorkers who pray at least daily. 53%. Who say they believe in heaven? 67%. Who say they believe in hell? 50%. And it's definitely the Port Authority bus terminal. (laughs) Who say they believe in God? 58% are absolutely certain and 22% are fairly certain there is a God. In other words, 80% of New Yorkers believe in God with absolute or fair certainty. So it's obvious New York is anything but godless. Today, we wanted to speak to two women who literally wear their faith on their sleeves. Roweda Abdelaziz is a national reporter at Huffington Post covering Islamophobia and social justice issues. We have to take on all of these different challenges from the external and the internal, and we're consistently fighting this stereotype that our hijab, our modesty oppresses us and that we are one dimensional, right? Like the, you know, the mainstream media portrays Muslim women to be one dimensional and to portrays them to be suppressed and oppressed and then they can't live, you know, their lives to the fullest. And Avital Chijik Goldschmidt is also a journalist. She previously reported for The Forward and writes regularly for Fox, Salon, and The New York Times. I behave differently when I am out than when I dress less modestly and not, mm. you know, in a feminine way, but rather... I can't explain it exactly, a certain sense of self, a certain humility, a certain recognition of the divine, a certain sort of constant responsibility to my faith. And and I find it's such a good sort of check for myself. Our conversation with Roweda and Abital is coming up right after we say some really nice stuff about the organization that makes Saved by the City possible. 
RNS is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics, and I am a distinguished editor there with distinguishedness. Check out the newsletters, the opinion pieces from all different perspectives and belief systems. From Simran Jeet Singh's Articles of Faith to Jonathan Merritt's column on faith and culture. From Omar Suleiman's Islam Beyond Phobia and Jana Reese's Flunking Satehood, there's something for everyone. If you want to be blessed by the best in global religion reporting, visit religionnews.com. And while you're in front of your computer, contact us. We want to hear from you. Tweet to the hashtag Saved by the City and you can find a larger conversation happening there. Hashtag Saved by the City. We're super excited to be with Roweda Abdelaziz and Avital Chizik Goldschmidt. I first met these women when the three of us were on a panel together of journalists who cover faith and are faithful. And the conversation was so interesting. And I wanted to ask them to come speak with us today. Welcome to both of you. So back in before COVID times, I, Roxy, was on a panel with the two of you at Columbia Journalism School. And we were talking about our experiences as women of faith in journalism And toward the end of the panel, someone in the audience noted to me that I was the only one on the panel that wasn't visually marked by my faith, that I didn't have any clothing or outside indicators that I was a Christian, and she wondered how that might affect us all differently. I've pondered that a lot since then, and since she asked me personally, I have wondered how would you have responded to that. And I've just thought a lot about like the relative anonymity that I can exist in, in terms of being perceived as religious out in the world and how maybe that's shaped or impacted my life and faith. And then how the opposite for you two, how being obviously religious at a glance impacts yours. So I guess to start, because our audience can't see you, maybe you could just talk about what you're wearing right now, or if you're at home in sweats like I am, what you would (laughs) normally wear out in the world and how that's connected to your religion. Hi, this is Avital. I am an Orthodox Jewish woman. So today I am wearing my usual outfit, which is a wig on my head, long sleeves, and a skirt that covers my knees and tights. I tend to wear black, but I think it's less a religious reason thing and more of a New York thing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Let's be honest. It's just easy. It's my Steve Jobs meets Orthodox woman approach. (laughs) Um, yeah, this, this is, this is like my uniform, I would say about seven days a week. (laughs) And how is that connected to your faith? Like, what are those items that you just mentioned? Yeah. How are those connected? So, you know, Orthodox modesty codes for women essentially dictate for women to be covered. Uh, We see certain areas of exposed skin, most areas of exposed skin as erva, which is deemed nakedness. That's something that is done uh, traditionally taught starting at a very young age, depending on what community you're in. So that means covering a collarbone, covering your elbows and your knees and wearing skirts and then not tight fitting clothing. And mm-hmm. in many communities also wearing tights, you know, my wig, my headdress is, is essentially something that is done after marriage. There's this extra requirement for women to cover their hair as a sign of their sort of being taken. There are different explanations for it. We can kind of get more mystical. I tend to be much more of a rationalist. I like to look at it as a sort of, you know, kind of a parallel to the men in our community who also must cover their head as a sign of sort of a a reminder of God above them. So I try to look at my head covering like that as well. Awesome. And Roida, what about you? That's a great question. And I love that we're we're starting with it. And so kind of like you, I am currently also in sweats 
black sweats. Pandemic dress code. Pandemic dress code also just ordered more sweats on the way because, you know, (laughs) who knows when we're going to go out into the world again. But generally speaking, I'm a Muslim woman. I also wear the hijab. And so the hijab, broadly speaking, also refers to a barrier or a covering. And so colloquially speaking, most people, when we say hijab, they think of the very specific covering on the head that covers our our head and our hair. And so, yes, I do ascribe to that. But, you know, modesty, I think more generally speaking, and there are definitely a lot of parallels in Judaism and Christianity and in other faiths is this concept of modesty that is actually prescribed for both men and women. But I think because of just how the way the world operates, we more like think of women and and think women have to enforce the rules more. But uh, just to put it out there, it's equally as important for both genders. Generally speaking, that means wearing long sleeves and long, you know, pants or skirts all the way down to our feet. And then also covering our hair and neck and ear, depending on the style of how different women wear specifically the headscarf. And nothing that is also too form-fitting and is supposed to also be very loose as well. And this can take many forms, as one can see in the modest industry, but it's also pretty incredible to see how it plays out depending on the racial background of a Muslim. And so how Mm. Muslim women in, say, Southeast Asian countries, right, who may not cover their head as tightly, but, you know, like have one loosely cover over their head is very different from um, Muslim women in, say, Nigeria, right, who commonly wear the turban. And so I think it's pretty fascinating to see the different forms it takes place. But for me particularly, um, you most likely see me covering, you know, pants or a skirt down to my ankles and long sleeves and, and a hijab over a head scarf over my head. And that just ties back to this concept of the physical aspect of modesty, but also it is just as important. And I like to tie into the spiritual aspect of modesty. And so it is also in the way that an individual, a man or a woman conducts themselves and, you know, Mm -hmm. in in public and how they uh, try to, you know, show the values of Islam, of compassion and self-respect and mercy and good character in their actions, their speech, and kind of just in in their everyday life. This is Caitlin. And thank you so much, Avital and Roweda, for being with us today and sharing your unique perspectives on the clothing that you wear and what it communicates to the world about your faith. I wanted to hear a little bit more this value of modesty. And Roxy and I both grew up in Christian homes and communities where we heard quite a bit about the value of modesty from our religious leaders and our communities and have lots of thoughts about what modesty (laughs) means for us, uh, especially as women in the Christian faith. How would you articulate the spiritual value of modesty? Why is modesty important in your respective faith traditions? When we're talking about, you know, modest wear, I think it becomes problematic, not only when it's convoluted and, you know, it's being packaged by, you know, a certain gender or a certain train of thought, and it deviates away kind of from the origins and the spirituality of thing that that type of language then translates to like real life consequences where we're talking about, you know, uh, something that happened to a woman is because the way that she dressed or the way that she spoke or the way that she mm-hmm. carries herself. And that's, that's problematic everywhere, right? Not just in the, in the Muslim faith, right? this concept of victim blaming of women depending on how they choose Absolutely. to dress. And I it frustrates me because it 
takes away from the purpose of mm. this concept of modesty. And I think, you know, when we think of modesty, we're, we're not just talking about the relationship with clothing, but we're talking about the relationship and how we speak to God and how there are certain rules, right? Like when you come to prayer or you come to read religious texts or when you're talking to, to certain people in the community, when you're dealing with, you know, spouse or friends or families. And it's supposed to be an enhancer of being what I see as other elements of the faith, like compassion, like mercy. And I think all of that gets lost when we only tie this concept of modesty in the religious sense to clothing. And so I think mm-hmm. generally I'd, I'd like to see more of a deconstructing and a depoliticizing of this focus on women's bodies and an over-sexualization almost and taking the conversation away from a woman feeling you know, desexualized or over-sexualized to this concept of, okay, well, how does this enhance our day-to-day relationship with a faith in other aspects of our life? That's so interesting because certainly that is something that I I find myself and other sort of Orthodox women in my community also struggle with is is that, that same sexualization that comes with modesty. One interesting note about that that I actually read recently is this sort of history tidbit that has stuck with me. A founder of the Orthodox Jewish girls' school movement, which was called Beis Yaakov, which was founded in pre-World War II in Poland. And one of her basic foundational principles was actually teaching modesty to these girls. What I find so interesting was the way she defined modesty, Sarah Schneer, in her diaries was so different from the way we describe it now. Now, girls are often Mm. taught in schools you know, exactly. It's all about the male gaze and avoiding the male gaze and protecting men from sin. Their mm-hmm. sin is sort of your responsibility. There's a lot of language mm-hmm. around that. Oh, what I found so fascinating about Sarah Schneer was that she wrote in her diaries, I think it's 1920s, 1930s, she wrote, she doesn't even think about men when she's talking about modesty. She's not even thinking about sexuality. For her, modesty was a sort of egalitarianism hmm. that essentially mm-hmm. was sort of like an anti-classist <laughs> statement, right? Where, you know, mm-hmm. she was concerned that these young girls in Poland were, you know, sort of pining for the fashions of Paris. And she found it, you know, very materialistic and, and sort of, you know, anti-spiritual in a way, which I thought was such an interesting perspective and something that I think a lot about too in a community where, where there is a huge emphasis on modesty, but at the same time, at least, you know, in the circles that I'm in, you know, in the New York area, there's also a lot of struggles with consumerism and materialism and sort of obsession with fashion. Absolutely. This is Roxy. And I, I have, I've, I've thought about that a lot too. And actually all of my childhood, the messages that I had gotten around modesty were always about how I dressed. They were not the same messages that the boys were receiving. If they were receiving any messages around modesty at all, you know, they were receiving messages around like other aspects of exploring their sexuality and such. So yeah, I mean, it was very much the whole messaging around modesty was dressed so that the boys aren't tempted so that they don't sin so that you don't cause them to stumble. And I think at least for me, I felt like I I wanted to resist that. That made me angry and it made me feel like I was some kind of seductress or that I was being policed. And I really wanted to resist that. When I first read that definition of modesty as, as being more about living simply and not being consumed by desires for all kinds of things that come with sort of fashion and spending money and, and, and classism and all of that. So and I remember being really 
kind of blown away by that. Yeah, this is Caitlin. I resonate with a lot of what Roxy shared about her own experience. I love that reframing of modesty as not only about kind of a spiritual posture, but also potentially liberating for women not to be so caught up in secular Western notions of what's beautiful and fashionable and where we should be investing our time and energy because anyone who's trying to keep up with beauty trends, (laughs) it's exhausting (laughs) and it's expensive. That industry is built around the concept of buying more because, you know, you're not you don't have enough or you aren't enough. So that's a great thing to remember. Yeah. That segues really well into kind of something I wanted to talk with you all about, which, you know, I mean, Christianity in America is already sort of the unmarked norm. It's the assumption. And then on top of that, we were also as Christians unmarked by our faith visually most of the time. So you're both operating, you know, in a place where people notice what you're wearing and then also have associations with that about religion and a lot of other stereotypes and baggage that comes with that. And so I just, you know, wanted to hear kind of what are some of your more common experiences and the kind of common reactions that you get from people outside of your religion that you can tell are based on your appearance and how do you feel about that? How do you respond to that? Hmm. I think what's really unique about, you know, hypervisibility and, and this conversation about being marked in the Muslim faith is that Muslim women, specifically Muslim women who do wear the hijab, are obviously more marked or, you know, you could tell that they're Muslim, they have identifiers of their faith compared to, say, the Muslim male counterparts, you know, with Muslim men, perhaps sometimes depending on like the length of the beard, but for the most part, they can tend to blend in and and be almost religiously ambiguous and oftentimes racially ambiguous, depending on the countries that they come from. But with Muslim women, despite, you know, your race or where you come from, if you're wearing the hijab, you are a walking symbol and sign of Islam. And I think this comes with both pros and cons. But I think when you talk to Muslim women and oftentimes the Muslim women that I've spoken with, they have mentioned to me that they're really complex feelings going about being such heavy identifiers. And so, you know, one of the more heavier experiences is when we're talking about hate crimes and when we're talking about being on the forefront of Islamophobia, because Muslim women are more visible and they're identified by their hijab, oftentimes they're more susceptible Mm -hmm. to facing abuse, whether that's verbal abuse, whether that's physical abuse, being called out and being targeted on the streets or in the workplace, right, more likely to face discrimination. And oftentimes, and and many times the experiences is just one that Mm -hmm. is is an opener for conversation. And this, you know, sometimes is is a beautiful thing. And sometimes it could be difficult, right? So oftentimes, I, you know, when I'm going to pick up milk and eggs at the grocery store, it may not be as a simple transaction of going out and picking up milk and eggs. I think there's this assumption that women who wear the hijab Mm -hmm. are walking experts on the faith. And that's not true. Uh, you know, wearing the hijab is a sign of spirituality. It's a, it's a sign of religious devotion. And sometimes it's just a sign of wanting to become more spiritual, wanting to become more devout, want like an aspiration and then a reminder. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we study the text and we've memorized the text. So there's really a wide range, I think, of the common lived day experiences. It could be really daunting and really severe and, and really terrifying. And I think this is a common one, unfortunately, when you're living here in the U.S. and I'm sure other parts of Europe as well. And it's something that you have to actively think about. 
So I think the emotional trauma that comes from it can, can be quite daunting. And on the beautiful end of that spectrum, it's led to some beautiful conversations. And I think that's almost a rarity because oftentimes the negative experiences can overshadow the the positive experiences. And then it leads to a number of very complex feelings. This is Avital and I'll chime in on, you know, certainly I think from a Jewish perspective, there are some similarities, especially lately with the rise of anti-Semitism in the States. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I, I'm actually a child of Soviet Jewish refugees. And I kind of became more religious over the years and my parents, you know, kind of decided to become more observant and I grew more. And I remember throughout my childhood, there was this real discomfort from my family with me choosing to wear longer skirts or cover more, Mm. which for me was, you know, very spiritual and meaningful, but for them, there was this real fear, but you're marking yourself, you know, like, can't you just wear jeans, you know, Mm -hmm. right. At the time I thought it was silly, but we're living in, you know, New Jersey, there's no concerns. But now I understand my parents' fears, given where they were coming from. And also now I think we're living in a very different political climate. I've written quite a bit about this in the last few years. There's been, you know, a a sort of reported uptick in incidents, in anti-Semitic incidents on the streets. And they will almost always be targeting visibly identified Jews. So it's something that I think we think about and talk about more and more. I've certainly sensed a big difference, a big shift in the way that I feel in the street. You know, coming to Manhattan 10 years ago for college, I didn't think twice about dressing as an Orthodox woman. And now it sort of weighs on me, not as a burden so much as just something that I'm very aware of. And it also, you know, certainly affects our men um, sometimes even more because they wear a yarmulke on their heads. You know, my son wears a yarmulke and tzitzis, which is the ritual fringe garment coming out, peeking out from under his shirt. And I worry about him. I mean, he's four, but he and my husband were accosted just a few months ago on the street in the Upper East Side, walking home from synagogue one evening on the Upper East Side. I mean, if you can't be safe in the Upper East Side, where are you going to be safe? So, and, you know, the man was screaming at them, you Jews, you Jews, and a whole bunch of racist things. And... My son, who was three at the time, came home and said, I don't want to go to synagogue anymore. I'm scared of the bad man. He already understood that, you know, he's, he was accosted for this reason. So this sort of the question of visibility is something that we talk about a lot. It's very close to our hearts. And, and honestly, I think concerns, right? I think we, we talk about this from a safety perspective. For example, when I travel when my husband and I travel in Europe, my husband will wear usually a cap on his head to hide the yarmulke. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's a very conscious decision to sort of try to blend in. And I wonder if it will come to that here. Hmm. This is Caitlin. I I mean, I shouldn't be surprised given the anti-Muslim and anti-Semitic rhetoric and increase in violence against those communities in the United States over the last several years I can honestly say that's not something that I'm having to think about because, of course, I'm a white Christian woman. (laughs) I can imagine that there might be a tension there for you and other members of your faith communities. On one hand, there might be this sense that we need to dress in a way or present in a way that allows us to culturally blend in and protect us from being targeted by either linguistic violence or actual violence. And yet at the same time, 
you shouldn't have to deny or hide this really important expression of your faith because of the bigotry of the people around you. So talk a little bit about what that tension has been like for for both of you. This is Roweda. I think at the end of the day, when we're talking about clothing and, and the policing of women's bodies, you know, there's the externalities of it, right? So I think the challenges that Muslim women face when it comes to the outside world and the bigotry that's tied to it and the issues that come with it. And yes, and, and feeling the need to blend in and, and to dress a certain way. And then you have that same tension also internally, right? And I think when we're talking about Muslim women who want to dress more modestly or less modestly, and then you have, say, non-Muslim men who want to strip Muslim women, and then you do have some Muslim men who want to see Muslim women cover more. And so oftentimes they feel like they're trapped in between a rock and a hard place where you can't win because there's someone somewhere that wants to police how you dress. But I think this, this goes back to really talking about when we're talking about gender Islamophobia, there's so many layers to it. And so you also have a little bit of this fetish that we see externally, you know, so oftentimes bigots are not only want to control and what Muslim women look like, but there's also this uh, underlying sexual desires kind of goes back to the white man, you know, conquering the brown woman and her body. And we've seen this type of rhetoric play out in movies during wartime and past war wars and current wars and conversations in foreign policy. I think this is something that we're still unpacking and trying to understand the impact that this have on and how Muslim women want to present themselves. We have to take on all of these different challenges from the external and the internal and we're consistently fighting this stereotype that our hijab, our modesty oppresses us and that we are one-dimensional, right? Like, the you know, the mainstream media portrays Muslim women to be one-dimensional and to portrays them to be suppressed and oppressed and then they can't live, you know, their lives to the fullest. That in an effort to disprove this, Muslim women tend to swing on the complete opposite side of the pendulum and they become super women. But then they burn out so much faster. And because of this need to prove their perfection all the time, in order to resist all the labels that consistently get put on them from all of these different aspects. And in an effort to break out of it and to prove their humanity, it becomes exhausting to just exist. And I think oftentimes that's all Muslim women want to do. They want to live their best lives. They want to find their joy. They want to carve out their intimacy with their relationship, with their faith and spirituality. <laughs> Romina, I feel like this is Avital. I don't I feel like I don't have to say anything because you just said so much of <laughs> my experiences. I'll just copy and paste. What you were saying about, you know, feeling a sort of responsibility when you dress a certain way, when you present a certain way in society, something I also have really taken close to heart and I think has actually kind of really inspired me to to choose to dress modestly. For me it was a choice. There's a concept in Judaism called Kiddush Hashem, which means sanctification of God's name. So it's it's usually sort of invoked when we say, you know, when you're out in society, sort of, you know, try to represent God well, because you're an obvious, you know, you, you represent a community, you must represent God well. And I think about that a lot. I think about that a lot as wherever I am. You know, I think the other thing that is sort of external facing lesson from being visibly 
marked, but I think the sort of internal facing is that I, I have found personally that as I sort of took on more modest restrictions through the years, especially kind of becoming more orthodox, entering a certain sort of community, I'm married, I'm married to a rabbi. I feel like I'm in the thick of it in many ways. One of the things that I've felt, noticed is really that I behave differently when I am out than when I dress less modestly. And not, you know, in a feminine way, but rather, I can't explain it exactly, a certain sense of self, a certain humility, a certain recognition of the divine, a certain sort of constant responsibility to my faith. And, and I find it's such a good sort of check for myself, right? I find like, you know, I walk more humbly. I've noticed that shift because I wasn't always dressed, you know, dressing this sort of strictly. So it's, it's an interesting thing. It's personal reflection, but I do imagine that this is also sort of one of the goals, I think, really with modest stress and faith. Thank you so much to both of you for your time. This was a wonderful conversation and I wish that we could continue it and maybe we will get to do that someday in New York <laughs> in person when, yes. when all of this is over. So thank you so, so much for, yes. for your time and your thoughts and for joining us today. What struck me so much about listening to Roweda and Avital describe their clothing in particular, but really just so much of their lives are ordered around their faith, defined by their faith. Like there's so much intentionality in even a trip to the grocery store, you know, that is actually like affected by and infused by their faith. Yeah. And honestly, you know, even though as Christian women, we kind of assent to this idea that like, all of our lives are supposed to be affected by Christian faith. I don't actually know what that looks like a lot of times in my day-to-day life. And it bothers me that maybe I do blend in. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, would anybody be able to tell that I believe certain things about dress or food or shopping habits or relationships right. or prayer? I mean, it's interesting. I'm reading this book on habits right now and not habits as in the religious dress. Which I mean, that would be a way that <laughs> we could solve this. Right now. <laughs> but, it's, but also, maybe that's a fun connection as part of the reason that they're called habits is the point that I'm just about to make, which yes. is like a big part of making a habit happen is making the trigger for it or making the cue for it visible. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, these religious habitual things that are consistent in their religious lives, like the mosque's call to prayer, they make religion into a habit. They make it into something that's visible. And so you're cued and triggered to to do those things, to do those daily disciplines. And in a lot of ways, I don't have that. I don't have cues in my life to remind me to make religious devotion a habit in those ways. Yeah. I mean, it's common to hear people say like, I'm spiritual, but not religious. And I, mm-hmm. I relate to that because, you know, growing up, I think both of us could see the ways that Christian religion became like just a set of rules, like mm-hmm. absent a relationship or love or something like that. But I would like to learn how to be religious and also spiritual. Right. I think that's one of the draws of something like a liturgical service is mm-hmm. you're putting even if it's only one hour a week, like you're putting your body in a certain position, like a cue to practice devotion. Unfortunately, the rest of the week, I don't really find occasions to do that. I want to incorporate the type of devotional practices that Roweda and Avital described in my own religious context. 
I know we both talk about like there's a lot of things we appreciate about the way that we grew up. And, you know, one thing that evangelicalism really prides itself in is a sort of individual relationship with God and the freedom to express that, you know, praying in your own words to God or on your own time and and avoiding those kind of legalistic, like you have to do it this way kind of things mm-hmm. that, that we would sometimes look at like a high church tradition and be like, oh, well, that's just not authentic because it's not being... It's rote, it's not, therefore it's yeah, not Yeah, it's meaningful. rote, it's not spontaneous. Right. And, but there are ways that to really make something become a habit and to be intentional about it, like it actually does kind of need to become rote in a mm-hmm. way. It needs to become something that you don't have to force yourself to do all of the time. And then actually just being in that posture that you didn't even think to maybe do actually can trigger some of this deeper devotion and also maybe trigger more spontaneous devotion too. Yeah, I think it it was often assumed growing up evangelical that you had to like have like these feelings of devotion to do the prayer Mm -hmm. or (laughs) sing along Mm -hmm. to the worship song or whatever. And the problem is a lot of time I don't feel particularly devotional but what if the point is like you do the thing and the feelings come later and not the other way around? Yeah. And so often the thing that you do is actually what brings the feeling. I mean, how many times have I said something like the Nicene Creed or prayed the prayers of the people with, mm-hmm. you know, at a church service? And then I'm in a devotional place where I'm actually like praying internally to God. And that's what took me there. Yeah. If I started where I was actually feeling in a lot of <laughs> church services, it would be like, uh, I really want brunch. <laughs> exactly. Not like, very devotional thoughts. <laughs> exactly. So are you going to start wearing a WWJD bracelet? <laughs> you know, to bring this full circle, I'm now starting <laughs> to see the wisdom of my little dark green WWJD bracelet. I mean, it's silly, but like, I mean, well, actually going back to your tattoo, mm-hmm. there is something about being marked on your body with a religious symbol that is in a way it could be like a cue right like to mark like oh this is who this is who I am and this is what's most important to me and no I don't see like wearing the WWJD bracelet but maybe there is something like daily and bodily or physical like that that we we all really need yeah funnily enough next week we are actually going to be talking about fashion It's a perfect segue. All right. Well, let's wrap it up for this week. Wrap ourselves up in a habit. (laughs) Is that what you meant? Well, that's our show. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed yourself, let us know. Get in touch with us. You can tweet to the hashtag Saved by the City and we'll reply. We want to hear from you. Who should we talk to? What should we talk about? And you can email us at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com. Saved by the City is a Religion News Service production. The executive producer is Jay Woodward, and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. Chaz Russo put together our look, and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Caitlin Beatty and Roxy Stone. Thanks for listening.